The Student Voting Network podcast is produced by students at a national level. The views expressed in this podcast are not reflective of any organization affiliated with the Student Voting Network. Professor Grace, thank you so much for being here today to talk to the Student Voting Network podcast about your experiences and indeed your opinions about the ongoing (laughs) status of student activism. Rates of unionization have dropped dramatically since their peak of approximately 33% in the 1950s. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, rates of worker unionization hover around 11% as of 2020. Why should activists and organizers be concerned about this massive drop-off in union membership? This is a theme that I'll start with and come back to. You always have power in numbers. And if you don't have working people concentrated in unions in large numbers, then they really lack power. And in the 1950s, which you referenced, um, income in our country was more, more fairly divided and distributed than any other time in the nation's history. Now, for a number of years, I think people thought that this was just going to go on indefinitely. But what happened was that in the 1980s in particular, but it actually started before then, but it was really, it really was um, crystallized in Ronald Reagan's presidential victory in 1980. Working people after that really found their rights starting to sharply erode. And if we go back in time from the 1980s to the 1950s, the decade that you referenced initially, the reason that income was more fairly divided and distributed was for several reasons. First, there were higher taxes on the wealthiest Americans. And this, had, um, and this tax system or rate had been put in place in the late 1930s and 1940s, because it was necessary during the Great Depression to pay for social programs to combat uh, the poverty that had been caused by the Great Depression, and also to pay for and produce the weapons and material to fight and to win the Second World War. And after the war, the income from these wealth taxes, um, in some cases they were as high as 90 to 91% on that portion of an income beyond 600,000. They paid for such vital things as veteran housing loans, uh, the GI Bill, which sent millions of working class Americans to college for the first time, and um, which greatly, and that in turn greatly expanded public education, and then such things as the interstate highway system. So in terms of the use of public dollars for public purposes, it it enabled um, working people to have access to things that they had never before enjoyed in the United States. And as I indicated before, this fairer tax system remained in place, generally speaking, until the Reagan tax cuts occurred in the 1980s. And that, interestingly enough, is um, it was no coincidence, in my opinion, either. It was the same decade when union numbers began to seriously erode. And the second reason why the 1950s was a decade of uh, fairness was because of union concentration, which I've already referenced. 
And that meant simply that workers, whether they worked in industry or mining or transportation, could bargain with owners on a more, on a more equal footing, as it were. Workers used their numbers and their solidarity to get back a greater share of the wealth that they produced for their employers. And they were also able to bargain for um, health care, for pensions, for time off, for paid vacations, and they also were able to make their workplaces safer. And the greater percentage of workers that are organized, the more power they possess. It's, it's elementary perhaps to you and I, but it's something that a lot of people don't pause to really consider and understand. And of course, the same works in reverse. The less concentrated workers are in unions, the, the less power that they, they own and, um, and possess. And with less power, um, it's the employer who's making the decisions, not the workers through their union organizations. And increasingly, there's two kinds of unionism. There's business unionism, which focuses very narrowly on just the people that are represented by a particular union. And then there's something called social unionism. And I think in the 1950s and 1960s, so social unionism was represented by a number of unions, um, probably not the majority, but a significant uh, number of them. And this simply met, in my estimation, um, that unions understood that they needed to use their influence to promote social change, the, the larger social good beyond their own membership. And while there are a number of good examples, to me, the UAW always comes to mind. There was the union's president, Walter Ruther. Uh, there's the famous scenes and still photos of him uh, marching with Martin Luther King in August 1963, the day when King made his impassioned plea for economic and racial justice. And we would do well to remember that the march that August day was billed as one for jobs and freedom. It wasn't simply a question of racial justice because King, as well as the unions that supported that march understood that you couldn't really have racial freedom in this country unless you had economic freedom for the broad masses of both white and African-American workers. And of course now the country is even more diverse. Back then we could speak mostly of white and black, uh, but there's a much larger percentage now of uh, Latino workers and Asian workers and, and people from, from throughout the world now um, live in the United States. And interestingly too, aside from the issue of racial justice, um, there was an organization that I um, belonged to or was affiliated with for a brief time when I was in college, the Students for Democratic Society. And when they got started in the early 60s, they were called SDS for short, they received grants to help start their uh, or to help further their organization from the UAW. And the student group's most important gathering, which was held in 1962, actually occurred in Port Huron, Wisconsin, and it was held at a UAW um, summer camp. And the most important theoretical idea to emerge from the student group was the whole concept of participatory democracy. And simply put, that meant that ordinary people had the right to influence and determine that which affects, most affects their lives. In other words, they should be able to participate in the decisions that affect their lives. And to me, being in a union represents much the same thing, bringing such rights and participation into the, works, into the workplace. So 
you don't simply have a situation where the owners and their foremen and um, subordinate managers are dictating to workers without the workers having some kind of a say. So for all those reasons, I, I think that union concentration and union density is something that is vital, not only to working people, but I think for the health of the entire nation. And so to that point of coalescing power and, and exercising that power as a union, fusion voting occurs when two or more political parties endorse the same candidate as a means of advancing commonly held beliefs at the ballot box. Notably, however, the process is only technically legal in eight states. How can this process help build, maintain, and restore a union as well as student power at the ballot box in New York and elsewhere? Well, in the electoral realm, the decline of unions has meant a loss of, of political power. Um, in addition to economic power, working people would leverage through their contracts, uh, particularly in the 70s and 80s and right through to the 90s, unions were losing their um, political power in the Democratic Party. Um, I think that was best um, represented by the election of Bill Clinton, who famously put aside the influence of the Democratic National Committee, and he created his own vehicle in order to help further marginalize um, unions. He was once described by the president of the Arkansas AFL-CIO, a man who had known him well and had to deal with him as, as governor, that Bill Clinton was the kind of man who would come up to you, shake your hand, look you in the eye, and then he would piss down your leg. So that's who we wound up as president for, um, for, for two terms. And when unions lost their influence in the Democratic Party, it in turn heightened the influence of labor-hating forces in the, in the entire United States. And the absence of um, union education left unorganized workers, who are now the vast majority of um, working people in the United States, open to claims of falsehood. And we saw all kinds of falsehoods that were being articulated during the election of 2016 and beyond, of course, well into 2020, and we're, we're still dealing with some of the consequences of all of that. And white workers um, were told that minorities steal their jobs or force them to pay higher taxes for social programs that they don't use, and, and, and many things that were far more vicious than that. And in New York, as you've indicated, it's one of um, the states where a third party can um, cross-endorse a candidate. And simply put, this means that the Working Families Party, which I'll call the WFP for short, that was created in New York State by the UAW, by UAW and CWA leaders in 1998, can endorse the same candidate that has been nominated by a major party, such as the Democrats. So in effect, they form um, an electoral coalition. And we could look at um, an example of how this works. Let's say a, a candidate has the Democratic endorsement as well as that of the um, WFP, the Working Families Party. And this candidate, um, say, gets 10,000 votes on the Democratic line and 1,000 votes on the WFP line. So collectively, that candidate has 11,000 votes. And if the Republican candidate gets 10,500 votes, let's say, he or she loses because even though they got more votes 
than the candidate did on the Democratic line, the candidate at the same time benefits from the 1,000 votes that he or she received on the WFP line, and that makes the difference between victory and defeat. And of course, when there's a victory that's involved, the Working Families Party knows that, and just as importantly, the winning candidate knows that. So that gives the um, Working Families Party with their union agenda more influence in determining what that candidate does as a legislator. And we've seen that, for instance, in being able to increase the minimum wage in New York State, winning important um, victories here in Erie County, New York. Um, Buffalo is in Erie County where I live. And um, more, most recently in the New York State budget, where taxes on the, the wealthiest people in the state are going to go up in order to pay for badly needed um, social programs, particularly in terms of medical coverage and education in this state, making New York State one of the more progressive states in the entire country. And I think the fact that we have the Working Families Party here in New York is one of the reasons why, why New York has become one of the most, I mean, it is a progressive legacy, but it is now arguably, along with California, one of the most liberal states in the entire country. I, I like to believe that the WFP is responsible for that. And I'd like to add too that um, thousands of years ago, there's this, um, there's this famous Chinese general uh, by the name of Sun Tzu's, uh, I may be mispronouncing his name, but he, he wrote that in warfare, enemy forces are united, they should be separated. And to me, what the WFP does in elections is to keep progressive forces united instead of separated. When we've been able to do that, um, I think the progressive forces have won because we're, the coalition holds. But not everybody in the WFP understands that. And I think, to be very frank about it, in recent months, I think there are some in the WFP who feel that the Green Party, which is now defunct as a result of the their failure to win enough votes in the most recent election in 2020, continues to provide a better and purer model for how we should behave or, or operate, I should say, in the political realm. Because by running their own candidates, they can maintain the purity of their political program. And they see then the Democratic Party um, as being insufficiently aligned with their progressive principles. But I think that that approach fails to appreciate the warning about becoming separated and the importance of maintaining unity. So to sum it all up, I think the Working Families Party has been able to accomplish through a coalition with the Democratic Party of bringing more and more union people into the process, but also being able to quantify where a candidate's vote is coming from. So if a candidate gets 8% of his vote or her vote um, from the working families line and wins their race by a very small percentage, then we know that it was the working families line that, um, that, that brought them victory. And without the support of unions and working organized working people, that their candidate's victory would not have been possible. And thereupon, we have much greater influence.
And so what types of mobilization tactics then can organized labor engage in to incorporate student activist voices? And furthermore, how might young people in these spaces become more engaged as a result of those efforts? I'll, I'll speak in general terms, but I also can, um, can speak from some of the experiences that I've had, if, if you like. But I think that education has to come before mobilization, because you have to know why you're becoming engaged. But having said that, even if education does precede mobilization, at the same time, people learn when mobilized. Experience is a great teacher. And the back and forth of education means that leaders are teaching and learning at the same time, just as are the members of an organization learning and in time becoming teachers of others. Uh, Members of organizations, um, in my experience, are not going to follow leaders that they don't know and who have not earned their trust. And And that trust only comes about when leaders know and care about those people that they lead. And that kind of confidence is not built online, nor is it built, in my estimation, um, through Zoom conferences. I think that these can be wonderful modes of communication, but but they're a very poor substitute for old-fashioned organizing, which, in my experience, and I think in the experience of most people who've done this kind of work over over the long haul and over the decades, is very hard. It sometimes takes some years of efforts to produce produce some visible results. And along the way, winning um, even small victories is essential. Otherwise, people become resigned to accepting what is instead of believing in what could be. And because change is so often difficult, in fact, customarily, it's very difficult, it is important for organizers to learn how to pace themselves. We all have so many bullets in us, as it were, and it is best not to fire them all at once unless a reserve supply is available. And whenever I've experienced days and weeks and sometimes months of of really intense organizing work, I made certain to make sure to recharge my batteries. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to have done the work that I've done over the course of, of 50 years since I've been 18. Because if you don't take the time to recharge, you otherwise are not going to have anything left to give. And all the valuable experience that um, one has accumulated is not there to be utilized again, nor is it passed on to um, other organizers who who can benefit from um, that kind of experience. Probably the best organizing pearl that I've ever come across is this, always bring a crowd. Um, And I first came across that saying, when I was, I, I was probably in my early 40s, and I had read this book by a former UAW attorney, United Mine Workers attorney, that was entitled, Which Side Are You On? And the author, Thomas Gohagan, he devoted a chapter in his book to an African-American steelworker president. I think his name was Frank Lumpkin. And essentially what Lumpkin was preaching was that, that there is power in numbers. And if you really want to make a dent and show whatever force you're up against, that that you have power, then you turn out large numbers of people. Therefore, if you have the option of taking a narrow approach to politics or taking a broad approach to politics, say in the form of a broad coalition, I think you're always going to be able to accomplish more 
by taking the broader coalition approach than narrowing your focus and believing that you can do organizing with just a, a handful of people. And organizing and organization are always key. So you sort of hit on this point a little bit, and I think I have an inkling for how you're going to answer this, but student activists and organizers often rely on the internet as a means of facilitating voter engagement, even before the pandemic. Now that there's a tangible goal of 200 million shots in arms in the next 40 days, organizing is very likely going to be able to pivot back to in-person events within the next few months. What lessons should students, often seeking instant gratification, take from this renewed pivot to interpersonal organizing? And in your estimation, is the internet an adequate means of organizing when in-person organizing safely returns? I don't think that they should, the two things are at odds with one another, but work over the internet is only a tool toward accomplishing bringing together large numbers of people. And if you're, if you're going to have a successful campaign, let's use the example of a strike. Workers would have to be out of their minds to go out on strike if they weren't prepared for it. And if they didn't have leaders that they could trust. So unless you're prepared, a, a strike or an election is not something you'd wanna devote yourselves to until you were really prepared. And of course this works better with, um, by likening it to a strike than it does a, an electoral campaign. I remember years ago talking with a lawyer who was representing a Teamster union. And the Teamster president was all prepared to take his men out on strike. And they were virtually all men. They were, um, they were beer truck drivers. And the owner of the various beer companies already had um, scabs lined up to take these guys' jobs. And the attorney was, was worried that as soon as they went out on strike, all these men were going to be replaced and they wouldn't be able to stop the trucks and eventually the union was going to be broken. And I had read an article in a journal called Midwestern Labor Research Journal or something to that effect about how to wage an inside campaign and, and a slowdown. And if they, had, if they utilized that approach, which would impair the functioning of the, the beer deliveries, then the bar owners and the stores would, would be getting annoyed with the company because they weren't getting their supplies on time. And that's exactly what happened. And eventually the uh, employer came to terms with the Teamster Union through this slowdown and inside campaign. Whereas if they had gone out on strike, they probably would have been slaughtered and had their, had their union broken. They, they knew how to marshal and best use their resources. I think in a campaign, if you plan it properly, you can, you can achieve great things. When, when we talked at an earlier time, I cited an example of my own involvement in a national political campaign in 1988 on behalf of Jesse Jackson. We had a congressional district in upstate New York that stretched from Lake Erie, Hamburg, New York, all the way to Geneva, which is in the Finger Lakes, was 130 miles long. And people said that we had our screws loose to think that we were going to be able to win anything in a district that was entirely suburban and rural on behalf of Jesse Jackson. 
But I knew that some of these towns were progressive. And I knew that some of the areas went through college towns. And I went, and I also knew that some of the areas had significant African-American populations. And if we could get people in those areas in advance and get them organized before the petitioning started, we could have a structure in place where we could not only get um, Jesse Jackson on the ballot in that congressional district, but that we could actually um, win enough votes in order to send delegates to the Democratic Convention in 1988. So we wound up doing so, and it was very hard. We were doing it in the February cold of upstate New York, but we were still able to accomplish it. And we went from having under 6% of the vote in 1984 when Jackson first ran to almost 19%. It was the only uh, congressional district in the entire state that tripled their their voter turnout from um, four years beforehand. And we did send a number of people to the Democratic Convention. Now, that um, story illustrates something else. People could say, um, in fairness, well, Jackson didn't win the nomination, someone else did. And that person who won the nomination didn't win and a Republican became the president. But it also could be asked, would Barack Obama have been able to have won his election in, in 2008 had Jesse Jackson not run his campaign in 1988, 20 years beforehand. So sometimes these things take a long, long time to germinate. And I would say to young people today, if they're interested in getting involved in electoral politics, the best thing that they can do, instead of just sniping from the sidelines and uh, making snarky comments um, on the internet or on Facebook about Democrats, Get out there and do some work. You know, that's the best way to produce change. You know, you're not going to do that in the privacy of your living room in your parents' basement or in, or in your bedroom. You've got to get out there and do, and do the work. And there's no substitute for hard work. Professor Grace, I just want to thank you from the Student Voting Network for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Oh, you're quite welcome. I, I was I was glad to be here. I uh, hope I had something useful to say to your listeners.